Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast. I'm Renee Francaire, the editor of Blue Line magazine. Thanks for tuning in. I just want to start by saying we know it's a stressful time right now. We're living in unprecedented situations in terms of this pandemic's rapidly changing um, attributes. Many of us are feeling overwhelmed. Many of us are adjusting to new routines, new normals. We're doing our best and putting on a brave face for our friends and families. I want to thank each and every listener out there in our law enforcement field, in our healthcare fields, in our emergency services fields, those staffing the grocery stores, the pharmacies, the postal workers, plus the essential workers who have to, have to stay home because they are sick. Thank you for doing your part. Thank you to all of you for everything you're giving. Today, to touch more on this interesting situation we're living in, we have a very special guest in the studio. Uh, a studio from afar, of course, because we're practicing social distancing. Former police chief and senator Dr. Vern White joins us from our nation's capital. Dr. White is the former chief of police in both Ottawa and Durham region, and he served with the RCMP for more than 20 years, leaving as an assistant commissioner. He is also the lead consultant for Syntax Prepares an emergency planning and crisis communications agency. And he's here to share some of his thoughts on policing this pandemic. Senator, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. We are honored. Yeah, Vern, if you don't mind, it uh, makes it easier. Wonderful. Sounds good to me, Vern. Okay, well, I mean, where do we even start, right? It's, it's, it's changing day by day. It's just very interesting times we're living in, to, to say the least, right? Uh, it's been nonstop. So, so how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Living in Ottawa, I think it's uh, probably easier for me than some people. I, I tend to get uh, or see what's happening a little bit more quickly. Um, hear the news. I mean, Ottawa is built uh, to have news facilities for a capital of a country. And when something like this is going on, I think they put their tools to other uses. So as a result, I think we're seeing a lot of the news and a lot of the information quickly uh, by living in Ottawa. So I think it's helpful. Uh, I think it's also helpful uh, to be uh, near home. I think, uh, you know, right now you don't want to be in a job if you can help it where you're traveling outside of your home area. So that's uh, that's helpful as well. For sure. No, I can imagine. And the social distancing, I, I know, uh, how's that going for you? Because I, I heard you refer to the toe tap as the COVID-19 handshake. I think that'll be our, our handshake for a long time. I, I, I do think this will change a lot of us. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the social distancing is going well it's uh, we've been focused at home of course and I, I uh, don't think I've walked my neighborhood as much trying to get some uh, some level of uh, fresh air and uh, doing some work around the house and, and writing some articles I've written a few articles in the past couple of weeks uh, one for you and thank you very much for publishing that I wrote a couple in Australia as well uh, uh, one on leadership in uh, in a pandemic and one on uh, uh, drug addiction in Australia who were 
battling some of the same challenges we are when it comes to opioids and crystal methamphetamine. Wow, interesting. Yeah, no, we really appreciated that article uh, that, you, that you sent our way. It's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, healthcare workers are front of mind, of course. Um, municipalities are out there every day making announcements, but uh, sometimes police, it almost gets taken for granted that it's business as usual and we were almost left out of the plan. So I appreciated you giving us a, a specific article for our readers. So thank you very much. Yeah, and this is one of those times where the police at this, this time anyway, aren't at the front end of the uh, crisis. It's not uncommon in a crisis like this, if we go back to 9-11 and people keep referring to it, it feels like 9-11, but during 9-11, of course, we were all on heightened awareness for terrorism and the police became the focal point, I think, of a lot of the work being done. Uh, in this case here, our calls for service from speaking to some services across the country are down 40, 50 percent. Um, but yet we still have to staff and have uh, many places, minimums. For our officers are still there working and the fear, now the, the fear from a family perspective is that they're going to bring something home as a result of their work. I, I think it's a different thinking right now and we have to make sure we make those, those adjustments. As leaders in policing, they have to make those adjustments for the membership. Exactly, yeah, and that transitions right into what I wanted to discuss next, just because things are changing so rapidly. You know, I'm reading reports out of Saskatoon and, and across Canada and across the globe. People, um, you know, are, are, are spitting in officers' faces every day, threatening them, saying they have coronavirus. And um, we have news out of Montreal about uh, 100 officers quarantined there. So things are changing every day. Um, it's hard to keep you know, up to date. It's, it's a fire hose, right? But uh, with, with all of that in mind, you know, what, what do you think police leaders need to be mindful of as the situation continues to evolve? And, and then, of course, the frontline officers themselves. I, I know um, in a previous uh, 580 CFRA News Talk radio interview, you said that constant communication is really, really key. No, that's right. I mean, I think at this point, um, for membership, it's hearing from leadership directly or indirectly, continuously will give them the information they need to uh, inform themselves and to feel assured. Uh, secondly, it's also information they can pass on to their own family members, knowing you know the calls for service are down. It's a positive thing overall, but it's also positive from a, a community interaction perspective. So I think that constant communication between leadership and membership will help um, them educate themselves, but also educate the people at home who are just as worried and often uh, even more worried because they may not be trained in the same way that police officers in particular are to understand the risks that they take. Uh, so I think that constant communication has to be out there. And perfect example is, um, you know, we all probably read an article this morning that two people test, two police officers tested positive from Montreal on the 100 are under quarantine. Without reading the rest of that story, you would think it was work-related when, in fact, it was travel-related. All 102 cases actually are travel-related, from what I understand. So it's important that the, the information be communicated, but it also be communicated clearly and uh, which is much, with it, as much transparency as possible. Very well said, exactly. There, and there's always more to the story. We, we've, we've got to be careful about that fear-mongering, of course, and um, panic-inducing uh, news releases. So anything else that law enforcement needs to be doing, in your opinion? Um, you know, we, we're seeing on our Blue Line Forum how one officer is 
avoiding touching people's documents, asking them to show the driver's license from a distance, and then writing that number down. Um, and of course, supplies for, for our officers are, are top of mind as well. You know, gloves, masks, sanitizers, of course, uh, taking precautions like having one officer in a vehicle, and of course, restricted numbers in buildings. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts for, for anything else that you think law enforcement needs to be doing um, and the how there? You know, I think all of that, right? The social distancing will be and is as important for, for police officers and uh, policing staff as it is for the public. And, you know, the, the suggestion that you could have two officers in the front seat of a vehicle and they could still practice social distancing is probably not realistic. So it might be local, it might require you to have more vehicles out there with more officers and responding to calls in two vehicles instead of uh, one vehicle with two officers. I think those things have to be considered. Also, whether or not you are uh, handling other people's driver's license or probably as a necessity, most people have phones. I know one officer who emailed me, one of my students out of Australia actually, and that he was, would take a photo at the at the window of the driver's license, go back to the car, write up the ticket, and, and then bring it back. So I think there are, are different ways these uh, folks are going to have to manage, I think, as well. We will see officers doing less things out there proactively because there's not as much traffic, as an example, on the roads. I mean, you can drive into Ottawa today um, and have no uh, slowdown at all from traffic. There's not a, probably not a, a vehicle on the on the highway right now. So I think, uh, you know, the necessity of doing some of the things in the past they would have to do, uh, having officers, I would suggest working uh, or or working at distance instead of having everybody in the office, or in the past when there was low calls for service, you might have multiple officers sitting in cubicles next to each other. You may want to have those staggered and have some officers working from alternative locations. In fact, in some cases, you may actually have them working from home if they choose to. I think there's a number of things you have to look at. When it comes to supplies, uh, gloves, masks, sanitizers, all important. Uh, you know, most police services probably had um, the N95 mask uh, already on, on strength, but they may not have had enough and probably would be surprised if they did have enough that will get them through this because I, I think this will be a matter of months, not days or weeks. Um, so I think that's going to be important that as, as provinces and federal government start rolling out supplies, that police services, along with others, are ensuring they have enough equipment to, uh, to manage that. And I think uh, the last piece is understanding that staffing and officers, if they are sick, they need to be somewhere other than at work because we can't afford to have whole platoons go out uh, or worse because when you know, in uh, in weeks to come, not only because we don't want them sick, but we we want to have enough resources to be able to continue to manage the calls for service and and take take the lines that we're going to have. Um, and having officers testing positive, as an example, or a comm center folks uh, testing positive, or other operational non-uniform testing positive will will jeopardize a whole organization, not just an individual or a family or a small group. So I so I think all of those things are key. Um, for leaders and police organizations right now if they want to be able to maintain the relevance of that organization as we move forward because this is a long game, not a short game. Exactly. No, thank you. Lots of good considerations in, in there. And then if we, we you switch, uh, you know, and turn the lens kind of inwards, you know, in our article, 
that you wrote for us, you mentioned how many of those on the front lines have families at home who are managing stress of their own on two fronts. Um, spouses, especially those with children at home, are, are dealing with isolation and separation um, as we continue the social distancing. And, and they're likely worried about whether their partner will be bringing an increased risk in, to their home when they return from work. So, you know, a little bit more on this. How do we navigate uh, this situation in a way that can help everyone? Um, you know, what are your tips for police members uh, when they're going home and uh, vice versa for their spouses? Yeah, yeah. And as I said in the article, you know, the importance now of that communication between, uh, you know, the folks at work and the families at home, understanding, you know, how many calls for service you're actually going on. Um, in the past, if you worked a Thursday night in downtown Ottawa, uh, going home after your 10 or 12 hour shift might mean the number of people you've arrested, the number of interactions you've had, the number of calls you went to. Um, and spouses heard those stories. I think now explaining that, look, you know, tonight we only engage with three different people each time, you know, I took these precautions. I think it's important now for officers out there to make sure that their family understands that they are taking those precautions on the street that the calls for service are a lot less than it used to be, that the engagement with the public is a lot lower than it would normally be, um, so that you're as safe as possible. And the example I would use is, as, you know, I talked to someone yesterday who said they went to the grocery store, and then when they got home, they had to explain to their spouse everything they did at the grocery store. Did they wash the handle of the cart? And yes, they did. How did they handle the vegetables and fruit? Did they actually touch them if they were outside plastic? If they did, you know, what did you do after? I think whatever you would explain in your everyday life when you come home, with, when you're when talking to your family, you're going to have to do it with your work, work maybe tenfold to make sure they understand that you understand the seriousness and that you're able to explain to them the things you did to try and negate any potential um, virus that you might have picked up. So I think it is going to be key that they get into that continuous discussion uh, when they re return home after every trip. Not only are they doing it, making sure that they're as safe as possible, but they're explaining to the family the things they've done to keep themselves as safe as possible. Awesome. Great advice. Yeah, there we go. The, the constant communication again, like you said, it's, it's really key to get everybody through this, I think. So... Canadian law enforcement, um, you have such a wealth of, of years and experience. Tell us, do you think that we had adequate training for this pandemic, given, of course, the czars and the H1N1 history that we dealt with? Um, you know, is there anything that we could have uh, done better in terms of uh, training and preparation? I don't know that we could have done much better to train. I, I do think law enforcement in Canada probably have some of the best training in the world when it comes to policing. You know, with 190 odd police agencies, we still have um, high-level adequacy standards in every province and territory. Um, I, I, I do think as well that having gone through SARS in particular, I think a lot of services got a better understanding um, of the importance of having the training and also having the uh, equipment necessary. I also think, kind of post 9/11, when we came up with the. CBRNE training for policing agencies, uh, as well as other agencies for policing in particular. I think educated police officers and organizations about the importance of being prepared. I, I think we're in better shape, you know, almost 20 years after 9-11 than we were certainly before 9-11. The second part to that, though, probably would be, I'm not sure that you could ever train perfectly for this pandemic. I'm not sure that anyone would have believed that we would have um, this pandemic in our lifetime uh, in this way. Uh, you know, if you watch the, the movie Contagion, maybe you would have bought into it more quickly than the rest of us. I didn't. 
uh, watch that movie until recently. Uh, but I do think uh, it's almost impossible to prepare or to to predict every eventuality. Instead, we try to prepare for the most likely. And I think as well as we could have prepared, probably policing has done better than uh, than most um, police agencies in, in Canada, sorry, than most countries. The concern I probably would raise is whether or not we have some of the equipment for a longer period. But I don't put that on the police agencies. I would argue that our governments, and I think that's what you'll see going forward, that our governments have better stockpiling systems and better preparation plans across the country in a number of locations when it comes to the amount of equipment we might need and that we're rotating that equipment regularly. There was a discussion about one province having a large number of 95 masks. Uh, however, they had reached their expiry date, which doesn't mean they're not usable, by the way. It means that the foam inside the nose piece may not be as tight as it was previously. Probably isn't an issue, but still, people in charge of that should have been rotating those out more regularly for regular use into hospitals and things like that and replenishing them. So I do think we'll see a better plans going forward than we have. Um, you know, I think if we compare it to SARS and H1N1, uh, you know, probably the difficulty with SARS um, primarily was the fact that we didn't, uh, we had a lot of false positives, which meant that we wasted medical resources, but we did not have the push, the drive, on uh, the number of infections that we're seeing with, uh, with COVID-19. So I think it's difficult to compare. I think if we had another SARS, we would have been very well prepared to manage it. I, I don't think any of us could have expected to see what we are seeing now, but I think going forward, we'll learn from that. I, I, back to, though, I do believe police agencies in Canada overall are better prepared than most countries. And I look at a number of other countries uh, and some of the other work I do, um, and I think we're in a very good place. And I think our folks, uh, I, I would put policing in Canada up against any country in the world when it comes to the skill set. The numbers per capita, I think, are healthy. Uh, I do think Canadians as well are, are are more understanding and accepting of what police can do in certain circumstances, and this will be one of those. Wonderful. All right. Well, and you mentioned, you know, if this was another ZARS, we would have been very well prepared. And it, it, you're right. It's just the scale. How how could anyone have saw seen this coming? Um, ZARS, H1N1. I, I know I was in Ottawa when H1N1 happened, and I was actually sick just with a cold, but I remember, you know, the fear and thinking, oh, God, do I go to a hospital? What do I do here? And... Um, um, uh, I think that you were actually police chief in Ottawa during H1N1. Is that right? Yeah, I was uh, police chief during H1N1, and I was, yeah. the, I was with the RCMP during SARS. So wow. Um, we- yeah, and I remember both as well. You know, the the uh, and I think like we are now, we were surprised in both of those cases by the by the uh, breadth of the challenge, um, and we were lucky enough that we were actually able to exit those challenges more quickly than I think we will this one. Um, but I do think as well, the, the uh, our response in both of those cases were relevant to the communities. And I think everybody came out of that learning as we will this time. Uh, but every one of these times, every time we learn from something like this, we find ourselves questioning whether or not we did enough. And, and I think we that's, that's how you get better. Exactly. That's how we get better. We learn. So, so during SARS, you were with the RCMP, and, and we've read news um, of how some of the RCMP attachments right now across Canada are reducing and, of course, suspending certain front counter services and others normally offered in their, their offices. Um, 
but the Mounties National Headquarters said last week, you know, the pandemic, we want everyone to know it's not affecting how police respond to emergencies, and that's key. So there's, there's been no change to the RCMP's response to critical and emergency matters, uh, read a statement. The RCMP has plans for national and divisional uh, emergency operations related to health emergencies, of course, as well as business continuality plans. Um, these plans will be activated if and when required, uh, a spokesperson said. So from that quote, is there anything that stands out to you or um, an idea about these plans and what might propel them to activate in the weeks, months going forward? Yeah, first of all, I, I do think the uh, police services across the country, including the RCMP, who are doing things like um, suspending front counter services, that, that uh, connection in the, in the uh, front office, um, needs to be reduced as much as possible. As I said, calls for service are dramatically down, so it means that the response to critical emergencies will be less. I think the things uh, we we may see going forward, if we start we if we start to see increased lockdowns, and we potentially will see that, like we've seen in other countries, uh, we may see people uh, contravening those lockdowns. Some countries have seen looting, uh, thefts. Um, which may see our officers challenged in a different way to deal with that. Typically hasn't been an issue in Canada, um, but there are parts of other countries which uh, when when there's extreme circumstances that the looting uh, projects itself very quickly. So I think responding to that will be important. I think as well, um, as an example, if we had a couple of officers on a platoon who were positive and as a result infected a large group in a, in a police service, and we had to take a large number of officers, segregate them, and start working them two weeks on, two weeks off in a lockdown facility where they don't return home. I think that's the kind of challenge that police services need to be considering at least and preparing for again, not necessarily trying to predict it, but preparing that if we had to take 160 officers to ensure we had the critical mass to actually deal with policing calls for service, and limit their their connectivity to all members of the public. How would we do that? And you know, during the giant mine investigation in Yellowknife, and when I was there, um, they had taken officers from all across Canada and tactical teams, and were having them, uh, uh, I guess, uh, quartered at a, uh, in a military uh, a military hangar, um, and had somebody in cooking food for them every day and things like that for a couple of weeks at a time specifically because you needed them in one place and you wanted to be able to utilize them in one place. Uh, they weren't returning home. Um, they were actually uh, quartered outside of their own home communities. So I, I think, you know, we have to be prepared that if we get to that point where we have a lot of officers being uh, being hit with the virus, that we're going to have to protect the assets and the resources we have. I think as well, it's going to be really key that as testing is done, uh, if we believe officers have it, that we're able to test them quickly. Um, two reasons: one is so we don't find them uh, infecting the rest of an, uh, part of the or another part of the organization or a large part of the organization. But more, more importantly, even or as importantly, um, that after they go through that, if they do test positive, that they are able to actually return to work, uh, because the understanding, as of today anyway, is that. If you've had it once, the likelihood of catching it again is extremely low. So those resources will have to be utilized again. And I, I think understanding the manner in which this is going to be treated and, and uh, at this point in time 
and the ability to test is going to be key for police services who have to get to the front of that line, making sure their resources are tested as quickly as possible, uh, because their ability to infect large groups of, of uh, extremely important resources in our community uh, is extremely high. Awesome. Very well said. Yeah, and having those those tests available to our, our frontline officers will be crucial in the weeks and, and months coming forward. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stay tuned to see what uh, unfolds next. Okay. So last week in the, the mainstream media, we also learned how there was a spike in um, firearm and ammunition sales. There's been a number of fraud and scams uh, attached to COVID-19 as well that police are now dealing with um, and advising, uh, you know, members, vulnerable member, members of the community to be aware of. So uh, with that in mind, you know, the spike in firearms and ammunition and the fraud and the scams that are now attached, uh, you know, what, what's your advice for our frontline members and police leaders on, on these two subjects? Uh, going forward? Well, I was surprised that uh, I did see uh, some reporting in Canada on a spike in firearm ammunition sales. I was a bit surprised by that. I wasn't surprised. I mean, in the U.S., uh, tends to react a little more quickly in this way when something is happening. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it was mostly out of uh, anxiety and fear that people um, were not thinking about where we are, but where we might go and do I need to be able to protect myself in the future. Um, I think most police services will handle that exactly the way they should. Um, you know, we have, a, I think, one of the best um, systems when it comes to firearm access and ammunition access in, in the world. And, and compare, comparing ourselves to other countries, uh, I would compare us very favorably. So I think we're in a good place. On the fraud and scams, as long as there are idiots out there trying to rip people off, they will use every possible opportunity to rip uh, rip people off. And you know, some of our biggest scams already target our most vulnerable, whether that's uh, scam artists convincing elderly people that they need work done around their house that they don't need, knowing that elderly people might be a little bit more easy to convince uh, of such things um, is a perfect indicator. I, I I think that's exactly the type of people that we're going to see try to rip, uh, rip the vulnerable off right now, people who are already afraid, people who are already highly anxious already segregated, already nervous, already concerned about the future, and somebody comes either offering them a solution, offering them a product that they probably don't need or, or certainly don't need now, um, I think that, you know, this might be a time when law enforcement, and I'm seeing some of that, uh, law enforcement's very clear in their community, and that's where police leadership come in, speaking directly to citizens, saying, look, so we know, here's the thing we're hearing about, if you believe somebody um, is contacting you for this reason, please notify the police so that we can try and engage as well. So I, I think that, you know, that's where the police leadership from a public communication perspective will be important is trying to educate our citizens and our community members that there, there are uh, people out there looking to take advantage of this situation. And they certainly are out there looking to take advantage. Yes, they are. And, and I have been um, impressed, you know, with the response so far, at least from police uh, services and, and being active on social media and letting people know, hey, this is happening. Um, you know, just just so you guys are all aware, we want to do our job and, and let you know uh, as soon as we hear about it. So they, they're active and uh, I'm sure that will just continue. What, what do you think will be most difficult for our police members these next few weeks um, and months even as we've talked this is, we're in this for the long haul yeah I, I still think that our most difficult task uh, for police officers and police employees will be the engagement between organization and family 
um, primarily because families, you know, a, a typical family of four where one spouse is at home uh, working from home or possibly laid off the way things are going, uh, with two children who are supposed to be in school who are sitting at home not doing schoolwork <laughs> for the most part, um, is already difficult. They're already isolated and you're away for 12-hour shifts and you're returning home and you're bringing a high inten an intensified level of fear into that home. I think that is going to be the biggest challenge that they face. And I think that's why um, I think it's important that that communication between organization leadership and membership and the membership and family continue. And that even that families may have an opportunity to voice into the organization some of their concerns, and whether that's through member assistance programs, employee EAP, employee assistance programs, peer-to-peer. -peer. I think there needs to be constant connectivity right now because it would be one thing if this was a week or two, but it won't be. This will be months and and uh, at best. And I, I think uh, you know I, uh, most of us, if we could see the end of the uh, the difficulties, could refocus our family around pursuing that end. But we can't do that. Instead, I think we have to continuously uh, continue every day um, to engage back and forth. I, I think that will be the most difficult part. And ultimately, if we're good at it, organizations are good at it. Uh, will be the most successful, that they will come out the other end um, stronger, not weaker. So we'll see. Uh, I, I do worry about that, though. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And, and you know, I hope that uh, technology will, will help play a role in that communication. I had been uh, reading, it was a few months now, about the Halton Regional Police Service and their Backup Buddy app and how family members can access that for, for some communication as well from services and, and just not feeling as alone and isolated. So uh, hopefully we'll see tools like that utilized uh, more and more going forward by, by everybody. So uh, wise words. To, to heed in these uh, troubling, interesting times. So thank you. Let's switch gears a little bit. I, um, you know, I want to try to bring out some positive news, and I, I know uh, you, you're full of it as well with uh, some advice in terms of uh, heeding uh, silver linings, right? So, so what about some positive thoughts that carried you through some tough times as a former police chief and uh, any of those that you can offer to our, our listeners uh, out in the field right now who may be putting on their packs as we speak for another shift? I guess a couple of things, you know, uh, one is where I think I probably failed to some level and um, I was a primary investigator in Giant Mine and we failed to recognize, I think, the difficulty of you know, we had 30-plus officers working 16-hour days for the first few months, and then after that, um, 16 days on and a day or two off. And I did, I do think we failed to make the connection to the importance of the family, um, not only during the investigation, but following the investigation. And as a result, I think uh, we lost a lot of our officers um, to some uh, challenges mentally and addictions. Um, and that's too bad. I, I think it helped me later in life, but it's too bad that I missed it during that time. If I look at a real positive response, I think in uh, Nunavut, when I was the commanding officer for the RCMP, I think we had a number of shootings in communities. Uh, one officer killed and a number of shootings in communities over a very short period of time. And we uh, we were able to access the, the uh, use of a psychologist, the, an RCMP uh, resource, we brought in just about monthly for a few days at a time and would actually have him fly into communities and spend a few days with speaking to the family, speaking to the uh, officers, 
and in some cases, even speaking to leadership in the community about the challenges that we were facing from a policing perspective, I think that paid dividends. Um, you know, I would hope that most services out there by this day and age also have access to psychological services. Um, obviously, today it won't be face-to-face. -face. It'll be virtual, but uh, I think those services still can provide tools and tool building to officers and civilians out there who are continuing to go to work every day and, and how they can use those tools back home again. So I think probably, you know, my Nunavut experience provided me with uh, my best skill set and, and, you know, having been the police chief in Durham region for a couple of years and then in Ottawa for almost five years, I think those tools helped me at times uh, deal with some of the challenges we faced, um, but not every time. I, I, every situation has enough of a nuance to it that you have to shift your gears slightly to make sure that you're still relevant to the community you're dealing with. And today's policing community is different than the one I dealt with a decade or more ago, uh, much more socially connected, uh, much more engaged, and uh, probably in many cases much more switched on to some of the other issues that are happening in the community outside of policing. And I think understanding that they have a better handle on some of those things might be helpful to uh, leadership in making sure they're delivering the right tools back out to the organization and to the community. For sure, right. And, and uh, I, I suppose celebrating those connections and, and how um, they've nurtured those connections uh, going forward will, will help and, and bring some positivity to this. Because we're all in it together, right? That's right. You're absolutely right. Well, Vern, we've, we've made it actually to the end of our uh, podcast episode. So if you've caught any of our previous episodes, you know, we, we try to end each one with two fun questions uh, just to give listeners more of an inside scoop about our podcast guests. So uh, in this case, you know, it might also help it lighten the mood, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We need it right now. There we go. I hear you. So, you know, what is something perhaps uh, your fellow senators, uh, past colleagues might not know about you? Uh, probably that I grew up in a small, uh, a small town in Cape Breton Island, although many people might know I'm a Cape Bretoner, um, and that uh, the place I grew up, um, our first ride-alongs weren't in the front seat. Uh, most often would have been a pickup from a local police officer and brought home because of... Uh, Drinking and fighting, typically, I guess. I think uh, most people, if they know me closely, you would. But if they don't, uh, they may not realize some my first ride lines weren't the most positive. <laughs> I love that. There you go. I would not have known that. <laughs> Where in Cape Breton did you grow up? Uh, well, I grew up in a place called Scotchtown, but it's on the outside of uh, New Waterford, a uh, mining community. My dad was a coal miner for wow. 38 years or so. Oh, wow. Wow. What, you know, that's still one of my most favorite trips is, is doing the Cabot Trail in Cape Breton. Cause it's oh, just, beautiful. Eh? Oh, yeah, it is just mystic, yeah. like, feelings, right? Oh, beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, what about uh, one thing you, as, you know, a former police chief uh, and uh, an experienced individual in law enforcement, uh, and now as a senator, what is one thing that you couldn't live without? You know, it's funny. I spent, uh, in 1991, I spent three weeks on Ellesmere Island by myself at a small former RCMP post um, as we were doing some uh, work around trying to clean up the post. And I was sent in there for three weeks, totally by myself for three weeks. And I thought it would be easy. Uh, and about 36 hours in, I realized how difficult it was going to be to be alone. Um, and this time where I'm, I'm socially distancing myself uh, with my wife and daughter and, and mostly connecting in other ways with other people like I am with you today, 
I, I would miss um, that social interaction. I really, uh, as an East Coaster, I enjoy being around people and talking anyway, but um, I, I don't know if I, that I appreciate it as much as I do right now. Very true. And you don't notice it until you can't do it anymore, right? I, I, I always take for granted that uh, I can pop home, visit my parents whenever I want, and now it's like, nope. There you go. <laughs> you no, can... no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, awesome. All right. Ellesmere Island, that's fascinating. I've, uh, I've got to tell you, I've always had a, you know, a fascination with the North. Uh, I lived in Fort Smith in the NWT for almost a year, and I just, uh, I would have loved to get up to somewhere in Nunavut and, and just experience that uh, part of Canada. I think it's so unique, you know? It is. Fort Smith is a beautiful town. It's a bit mm. like a big campground. I, uh, I spent 19 years in the three territories, almost 19 wow. Yeah, no, it was, you know, some of the, the most uh, amazing and uh, unique experiences of my life that you, you'll, you'll never have again. It was, it was just such a northern vibe that you can't recreate anywhere else. Yeah, so true. Awesome. Well, Vern, thank you so much for joining us today uh, remotely. It was, I still feel that connection, so I appreciate you uh, bearing with us as we, we can't do anything face-to-face -face or in studio. It's, it's been an honor and a pleasure, so thank you for making the time and uh, connecting. Okay. Thank you very much, man. Take care. All right. We appreciate your insight. So stay safe out there. We're toe-tapping you from afar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Make sure to check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us under Annex Business Media Podcasts for Work. Also, check out our podcast tab on blueline.ca. Thank you to everyone listening, especially those out there on the front lines protecting our communities. Stay safe, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. 